Charges have been announced for the six people arrested Saturday in protests over Cop City, a police training facility proposed to be placed in a wooded area near Atlanta, Georgia, and the fatal police shooting of an activist earlier that week. According to CNN, they each face four felony charges, domestic terrorism, arson in the first degree, criminal damage in the second degree, and interference with government property, according to police. Manuel Tehran, whose chosen name was Tortuguita, or Little Turtle, was tragically killed by the police in protest of Cop City. Experts say this shooting was unprecedented in the history of environmental activism. Author and activist Marianne Williamson joins us now to weigh in. Hi, Marianne. Hi, how are you? Great, thanks for joining us. Uh, so how do you feel about the treatment of these protesters? Oh, I think this situation is extremely dangerous. I think it brings up two issues that are extremely concerning. First of all, it has to do with the killing of an environmental activist. We've seen these kinds of things happen internationally for years. We know they happen in places like Latin America. It has never happened here before. We need to look at this. I was noticing even on the CNN report, it said that the protester Tortuquita um, had shot first. There is no evidence of this. The article sort of said, according to police, they have provided no evidence. The police camera was not on. By the way, those things should not be turn offable, right? So we don't have evidence. There should be an independent investigation that does not come from the police department over what happened. Everything you hear about this young man makes it very, very difficult to believe that he shot first at a policeman. That's number one. So right now what they're doing is they're trying to criminalize the environmental activists rather than asking ourselves the reasonable questions about what happened here. The second thing that is extremely alarming is the fact that they were building this cop city to begin with. Can we talk about this? So you have 300 acres of forest land, which is very important, not only uh, for the environment. You know, I come from an area of Houston where there were all these terrible floods that were because of overdevelopment. So you need things like this forest land, okay? And, and when, when the uh, announcement was made that this cop city was going to be built, there was huge, huge argument against it from the people in that community and throughout Atlanta. What are we doing building a $90 million cop city? This is not the army. This is not the military. Who, who do we need? They said it's for um, to boost police morale and to help with recruitment. Can we all be adult enough to realize we have some problems as it is? We need to talk about legitimate police reform in cities like Atlanta. And even though they say, oh, this is going to be involved with police reform, there is no evidence of this whatsoever. So the very fact that they're going to go into a forest, cut down 300 acres of land in order to build a $90 million facility that's a cop city. I have been to this kind of facility in another country where there was there were, there were legitimate military purposes for something like this. This is not a military facility. Who is it that these people need to spend $90 million to figure out how to, how to what? So the militarization of the police is very concerning. This has been going on uh, really broadly since 9-11, and the American people need to really be on top of this. You know, there are a lot of things in this country about which Americans say, oh, it couldn't happen here. And one of them is police state. Let's not kid ourselves. A facility like this is infrastructure for a police state, and we should be very, very concerned. Yeah, I mean, there has been this interesting shift among conservatives to have more scrutiny um, uh, for 
the police and the other uh, prongs of kind of the security infrastructure after 1-6, there was some feeling that some of the protesters were um, unfairly or harshly targeted um, because they were caught up in their surveillance at the time. They were told by the president that it was okay to protest, and then some of them got some pretty significant sentences, and there have been comparisons between how they were treated and how various Black Lives Matter protests were treated. But, you know, Robbie, I'm curious what you think about this from a libertarian perspective as well. This is a huge amount of money being spent. There doesn't seem to have been a real argument about how this will do things that are in the public interest interest, like bringing down crime. It seems like it's a recruitment effort, uh, kind of like a cop camp. There are these environmental consequences. Mm -hmm. And there is this ratcheting up of this authoritarian uh, police state in conjunction with heightening penalties for protests. We've seen this in the environmental movement and beyond. Some people, even on the right, are saying that this is what happened in the context of the 1-6 protesters. What do you make of this? Yeah, I mean, it's important to know what kind of training the cops are receiving, because obviously I want cops that are well trained to um, to not not to, to defuse tense situations when they're when they're called into tense situations what you often have is police being trained to be more militarized um, and also being given more military type equipment right more more uh, more SWAT patrol type stuff and then then their interactions with citizens become more aggressive and more akin to you know a, a conquering army just like you said Marianne a police state a, a you know an, an occupying force um, which is really bad and really dangerous Dangerous, you know, the footage of, you know, no-knock raids in the middle of the night and uh, people being hauled out of their beds and being disoriented and confused and then not responding properly because they're half asleep and, and there's such dangerous, reckless situations. And then we've seen so many, we've seen, you know, mass shooting incidents, right, where, where the police, they have all that tactical gear and all that military-style training and they sit around for hours while uh, while the the shooters yeah. locked in the classroom with the kids is disgusting so uh, so I, I think there is a real um, a, a real pushback against this kind of thing from, from America this is the other question well Marianne I'm sure you remember back in 2020 despite the huge numbers of people in the streets over the killing of George Floyd Joe Biden in the context of his campaign came out and said we need to fund the police more and a number of Democratic candidates including Stacey Abrams in the context of her campaign wrinkled a lot of people including black Americans in Georgia um, black men in particular for saying well she wants to fund the, the fund the police more as well is there any pushback for this if the Democratic Party itself is apparently co-signing the, the continued in, increases in funding for the police. We need to have more adult conversations. That's why I appreciate what we're doing here right now. Both left-wing and right-wing libertarian perspective, we're all agreeing. We should all be concerned about the militarization of the police. All of us should be. And we should see also the connection between this and our defense budget. What happens, when people ask, well, what are we spending all this money on? Why all this money to Raytheon and Northrop Grumman and Boeing? They say, oh, guys, you gotta have this new equipment. The one you have from two years ago is outdated. So they say, well, what are we gonna do with the old equipment? and they say send it to the boys back home and so like Robbie was saying you have people all this military equipment in 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 domestic police and the and these guys show up even in this uh, Manuel Tehran case why were they there like a SWAT team so um, uh, to hear the Democrats uh, so afraid that the Americans can't handle a serious conversation and to run away from a slogan, which was a stupid slogan, we should reform the police. When Robbie was talking about better training, when you compare the training of an American policeman to, let's say, a German, we should be talking about the fact that in Germany, for, not just in Germany, but throughout the, uh, European uh, democracies, you have police that use far less lethal force, 
Americans are always saying, why didn't they just shoot him in the leg? Why did they have to kill that person? They use far less uh, uh, lethal force. They have far better results. And their police people are far better educated. We train people for like six weeks and put them out with all this incredible power, which, as Robbie was also saying, is often they're not even using it to actually get the bad guys, such as in Uvalde. Although I'm not trying to you know, paint that with a broad brush about all police. However, the idea is that in some place like Germany, it's two years. It's serious education. So uh, what we should be talking about is reforming the police. But when you're talking about $90 million for a new cop city, as you called it, Brie, there's nothing there about reform in anything but, oh, yeah, we're going to work on police reform. And they have given us no proof uh, that anything like that is going to be happening. That's the serious conversation uh, that all, all Americans should be having. It shouldn't even be an issue of right versus left. Proper oversight of the police. When you're talking about what, what, what we should be concerned about as a rogue institution, that's the one where we should be very, very concerned because things are happening no matter who you are on the right or the left that really make any intelligent, concerned America go, what happened there? That person was stopped at a traffic light and they were killed. And can we talk about how often they were black? So we all know this and these are the serious conversations we should be having. Well, we appreciate you joining us for some of those serious conversations, as always, here, Marianne. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm always glad to be here. Thank you. And we'll have more Rising for you after this. Robbie, what's on your radar? Well, last week I released the Facebook files, emails between the CDC and Meta, the parent company of Facebook and Instagram, that show how government health bureaucrats were able to influence the COVID debate on social media throughout the pandemic. Messages I obtained as part of the state of Missouri's lawsuit against the federal government showed that the CDC and Facebook communicated constantly, sometimes daily, and that Meta asked federal health officials to vet specific claims about vaccines, about masks, and even about the origins of COVID-19. In May of 2021, CDC officials began routinely vetting claims about COVID-19 vaccines that had appeared on Facebook. The platform left it up to the federal government to determine which assertions were accurate, as you can see here. Facebook's moderators note that some of the above claims would already be violating an implicit admission that the CDC's opinion on the other claims would be a deciding factor in whether the platforms would restrict such content. Facebook was clearly a willing participant in this process. Moderators repeatedly thanked the CDC for its help in debunking. Claims vetted by the CDC included whether COVID-19 is man-made. The CDC told Facebook that it was theoretically possible, but extremely unlikely. Now, if the tone of Meta's communication seems extremely friendly, it's worth noting that staffers viewed government employees at the CDC as their colleagues. They used that word to describe them. In one email, Meta discussed providing said colleagues with access to a reporting channel for COVID misinformation. The list of individuals with access included CDC staff, as well as employees at Rheingold, a communications firm advising government health agencies. Keep in mind that while the CDC was privately advising Facebook on which assertions it should allow on the platform, Democratic political figures, including President Joe Biden, railed against social media companies for not censoring enough alleged misinformation. Biden said Facebook was killing people. So here's the big question, it's the one raised by the lawsuit. Taken together, does the federal government's actions, its pressure campaign on social media companies, 
violate the First Amendment. Facebook, after all, is a private entity and thus is within its rights to moderate content really in any fashion it does see fit. But the federal government's actions can't simply be waved away. A private company may choose to exclude certain perspectives, but if the company only takes such action after politicians and bureaucrats threaten it, reasonable people might conclude that the choice was an illusion. Such an arrangement whereby private entities at the behest of the government become ideological enforcers is unacceptable, and it may be illegal. That's the subject of this radar, and also of my cover story for the March 2023 issue of Reason Magazine. You should check that out. There is a word for government officials using the threat of punishment to extort desired behaviors from private actors. It's called jawboning. The term arose from the biblical story of Samson, who is said to have slain a thousand enemies with the jawbone of a donkey. According to The Economist, John Kenneth Galbraith, the words public policy use began with, the, with World War II-era Office of Price Administration and Civilian Supply, which primarily relied on verbal condemnation to punish violators. President John F. Kennedy jawboned steel manufacturers in the 1960s when he threatened to have the Department of Justice investigate them if they raised prices. Jimmy Carter did the same to try to fight inflation in the 1970s. During the 2000 presidential campaign, Republican candidate George W. Bush explicitly stated that he would jawbone Saudi Arabia to secure lower energy prices. John Kerry criticized him for it. While jawboning has generally referred to economic activity, to attempts to intimidate other entities into changing prices or policies, there's a history of speech-related jawboning, too. Will Duffield, a policy analyst at the Libertarian Cato Institute, thinks the federal government's jawboning on COVID-19 misinformation might violate the First Amendment. Multiple arms of the administration delivered the jawboning effort together, he told me in an interview. Each one component wouldn't rise to something legally actionable, but when taken as a whole administration push, it might. In a recent paper on social media and jawboning, Duffield pointed to two very different Supreme Court precedents that could provide insight, Bantam Books versus Sullivan and Blum versus Uretsky. In the 1963 Bantam decision, the court held eight to one that a Rhode Island commission had unconstitutionally violated the rights of a book distributor when it advised the distributor against publishing obscene content. In the court's view, the implicit threat of prosecution under obscenity law was an act of intimidation. Richard Posner, a widely cited former judge of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit, referenced this decision, Bantam, in a 2015 case, Backpage v. Dart, where Tom Dart, an Illinois sheriff, had attempted to throttle the advertising of adult services on Internet platforms by threatening credit card companies that do business with them. Ruling against Dart and in favor of the platforms, Posner wrote that a public official who tries to shut down an avenue of expression of ideas and opinions through actual or threatened imposition of government power or sanction is violating the First Amendment. So if that standard were the law of the land, it would be difficult to view the Biden administration's jawboning as constitutional. However, in the 1982 Blum case, the Supreme Court took a much more dismissive view of informal government pressures. That, dis that decision held that government jawboning is only illegal when the state has exercised coercive power or has provided significant encouragement, either overt or covert. Now, a better solution to all of this would be to explicitly prohibit government officials from engaging in jawboning. Representative Kathy McMorris Rogers, a Republican representative from Washington, has introduced a bill, the Protecting Speech from Government Interference Act, that would penalize federal employees who use their position to push for speech restrictions. Enforcement 
would be akin to the Hatch Act, which prohibits federal employees from using their positions to engage in campaign activities. If this bill were to become law, federal officials would have to be much more careful about advising social media platforms to censor speech or risk loss of pay or even termination. This is the superior approach. Legislators should regulate government employees' encouragement of censorship on social media platforms rather than the platforms themselves. So, Bacha, I published last week uh, these emails from the CDC to Facebook that I thought were astonishing. And, and look, people can reach whatever conclusions they want to reach. I was blown away by and thought people should know about how frequent the communications were between the CDC and Meta, how much, um, uh, how much guidance and input was sought by the social media companies from the government, at the same time that in public, Democratic political figures were threatening these companies with increased regulations if they didn't do more to fight misinformation. With all of that in mind, and with everything we've seen with the Twitter files in mind, the question becomes, does this you know, skirt the line, cross into a violation of the First Amendment, even if you know, no, even if the government didn't explicitly ban or arrest or pass a law violating the speech rights and thus violating the First Amendment, is the pressure enough when you put all of these elements together to say that something unconstitutional was done? And it's an open question, but that was me, uh, me kind of exploring it. I don't know. What are your thoughts? Yeah, well, your reporting has been incredible and a real addition to the conversation. It, it was, I think, really important to take it away from the Twitter context and show that it's, you know, hashtag not just Twitter, right? <laughs> um, and also to take it out of um, whatever sort of conditions, you know, were set on the Twitter files. You did your own reporting and it was, it's really incredible and really important, Robbie. I think you're completely right. The question is, you know, to what degree is this jawboning something that, you know, to what degree was there an implied coordination between, let's say, the CDC and lawmakers who could penalize social media companies. I totally agree with you. I think the question is still out. However, what you have uncovered is still very bad. And I think, you know, even if you're a liberal and even if you thought that COVID misinformation should be censored, you should not want your fellow Americans to live like this, right? To live in a mm -hmm. context where they feel that there is this collusion is the only word for it um, on for for your side, even if this is your side, because that makes people crazy. You know, it, it makes people feel silenced and unheard and 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 subjected to a cabal. And you should not want that. That I, I will say, I, I think that there's one question that I'm very curious about which is, I think to make the jawboning argument, you would have to show that irrespective of the administration, the social media companies were behaving in the same way, right? Because the, the argument I would make is, if they were comfortable ignoring Trump administration requests <laughs> because they were not ideologically aligned with them, I think that a little bit weakens the jawboning argument because it shows that this was more social media companies' desire to um, enforce their own views rather than their fear of government reprisals. But again, this is nitpicking. What you've uncovered is extremely important, and, and I'm so glad that it's out there. And I really hope that this will be a wake-up call for liberals to see, like, it's it's just not fair that because you happen to be on the side of the people with this much power, therefore your view gets to be the only one that's heard. I really hope that people on the left can hear that message. Thank you very much, Bacha. Yeah, I wonder uh, if they could do it all over again, the social media companies. Yeah, and mm -hmm. by it, I mean, you know, the last, like, 
four or five years, how uh, if it would be the same thing, or would there be even more pushback? Because I, I think Twitter, and I'm not even talking about like the Elon Musk regime, but I bet a lot of you know content moderator type people at Twitter regret even giving the FBI, for example, an inch. And and they did push back at first, and then you know then they got totally rolled over by this agency. I wonder if there's any similar thoughts, maybe for not all of it, but uh, for some of, for instance, at Meta, like when they, you know, in the email where they, they inform the CDC that Fauci is coming under serious mockery for changing his positions on masks. Was that appropriate? Do they still think that was appropriate now that he's yeah. seen as a more, you know, nakedly political actor? You know, would they have warned uh, the Trump administration, White House, that Trump, you know, some viral claim mocking Trump is, uh, is really popular on the platform? It's very interesting questions. So you're right, the difference between the administrations um, might be key. So I'm looking forward to what you have on your radar, Bacha, and that will be up next. What's on your radar, Bacha? Well, a crack has emerged in the united front NATO member states have shown thus far in support of Ukraine's fight against Russia's invasion. At a key meeting of Western allies at the Rammstein Air Base in Germany this past weekend, the U.S. and others urged Germany to provide Ukraine with battle tanks known as the Leopard 2, considered the most advanced tank in the world. The tanks can travel up to 44 miles an hour, even on rough terrain, which is extremely fast for such a heavily armed vehicle. They're armed with a cannon, a machine gun, and automatic grenade launchers, and have ballistic and mine protections. But Germany has thus far ignored the pressure, even refused to allow other European countries in possession of Leopard tanks to send their own to assist Ukraine. NATO member countries collectively own about 2,000 Leopard tanks, and Poland, Finland, Denmark, and Spain have said they would be willing to supply Ukraine with 14 tanks each. But they need German approval to do so, and Germany has refused to grant it. Poland initially said it would send 14 Leopards with or without Germany's approval, but then backed down and signaled a willingness to wait. The rift between Germany and the other NATO member states has emerged amidst plans for a big offensive by Ukraine in which it hopes to retake territory. Recent reporting revealed that the U.S. is warming to the idea of helping Ukraine retake Crimea, which Russia annexed in 2014. The New York Times reported last week that though, quote, privately, military and administration officials had questioned the utility of Ukraine focusing attacks on Crimea, arguing Kiev's military had better targets elsewhere on the battlefield. The Biden administration is now considering helping Ukraine attack Crimea. It's important to remember that Crimea was part of Russia from 1783 until 1954, when Nikita Khrushchev, then first secretary of the USSR, transferred the peninsula to Ukraine to shore up elite support in a domestic power struggle after Stalin's death. You're not really to bring that up these days. You're not supposed to point out that back when Russian President Vladimir Putin annexed Crimea in 2014, the U.S. did not think it was in our national interest to go to war with Russia over the move. You're not supposed to ask why Crimea belonging to Ukraine rather than Russia is in the U.S. national interest, something no one has explained. Indeed, something no one has been called upon to explain here in the U.S., where the mainstream media is so solidly on the side of escalation and so rapidly against diplomacy that no one ever demands answers about the billions and billions of dollars we're spending on this conflict. Not so in Germany, which is refusing to play ball. 
Germany initially said it wouldn't send the Leopards unless the U.S. sent its Abrams tanks, something Pentagon officials have refused to do, they say because of how much fuel they consume and how hard they are to operate and maintain. But Germany's reluctance goes much deeper than a quid pro quo or a desire to share the blame for a new offensive. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz may be unpopular among NATO allies right now, but his decision to say no to Ukraine is solidly aligned with public opinion in Germany. Like most people in the West, Germans support Ukraine in the conflict, and yet a poll taken on January 8th found that 50% of Germans oppose sending tanks to Ukraine, compared to just 38% in favor, the Wall Street Journal reported. Those numbers have wavered due to -to wall-to-wall support for sending the tanks in the German mainstream media, but there remains strong support for Schultz's cautious approach, especially among younger Germans and Germans living in what was once the communist GDR. Germany has supplied Ukraine with support, the most support, in fact, after the U.S. and the U.K., abandoning a long-standing policy of not exporting arms to conflict zones. But it is extremely reticent to be seen escalating a conflict that's happening so close by against a foe with nuclear weapons. As Schultz's chief of staff, Wolfgang Schmidt, put it, if you have main battle tanks on the front line and they are captured with the German Iron Cross on it, That is the perfect propaganda material to say, look, we've always said it's NATO attacking us. In other words, Germany is sensitive to proving Putin right about his fears about NATO aggression, which was the ostensible justification for his invasion of Ukraine in the first place. But it goes deeper than that. Germany spends less on its military than its Western allies, failing to achieve the target set by NATO of 2% of GDP on defense spending per year. And it's by design. Quote, Germany has been on a peacetime footing for years, explained Christian Milling, deputy director at the German Council on Foreign Relations. The truth is that for decades we have seen our defense budget as a gift to our allies because they thought it was important, he said. An annual survey explains why. Year after year, Germans tell pollsters that diplomatic negotiation is the best way to resolve conflict. After initiating two world wars, Germans remain plagued with guilt and committed to a vision of themselves as turning their backs on a bloody past in favor of a peacekeeping present and future. Germany has a long-standing policy of restraint when it comes to military conflict of all sorts, and weapons export is seen as fueling conflict rather than reducing conflict, Thomas Kleine Brockhoff from the German Marshall Fund told the BBC. Quote, to export arms into the bloodlands that Germany helped to create, to supply one part of the bloodlands with arms against the other part of the bloodlands is an anathema in the German political debate. With their bloody history, German voters want their elected officials to try every diplomatic means necessary to pursue resolution before escalating a war, especially in a case like the Russian invasion of Ukraine, in which supplying tanks will certainly result in more killing, but will not necessarily put an end to the conflict. And German voters' elected officials listen to them. What a difference from how the Ukraine is treated in American public discourse, where all debate about funding to Ukraine is verboten. Anyone advocating for a diplomatic resolution is called a Putin stooge. And the millions and millions of Americans who have soured on their taxpayer dollars going to escalate a war instead of end it are simply ignored, erased from view by media and political elites with a singular view on the issue. Though support for endless funding for Ukraine is slipping in the U.S., On Saturday, President Biden reiterated that Ukraine was going to get everything they need when asked about the Leopard tanks. Watch. Do you support Poland's call 
to send Leopard tanks by Germany and other countries, Leopard tanks to Ukraine. And Ukraine's going to get all the help they need. Our politicians stand to learn a lot from Chancellor Schultz, who takes seriously what the people he represents believe is the right course of action. <clears throat> Schultz is currently withstanding immense pressure to put the needs of NATO and Ukraine above those of his own people. And he's shown remarkable courage facing down accusations of cowardice. I hope he stands strong and not because I don't want Ukraine to emerge victorious from this conflict. Of course I do but because it is treasonous to sacrifice the people who elected you on the altar of another nation's interests, another nation's conflicts, another nation's view of history. Germany understands that it is not at war with Russia and does not want to be, and there are ways of supporting Ukraine that maintain that status quo and ways of supporting Ukraine that disrupt it. It's clear what the German people have chosen and that their representatives have chosen to listen to them. If only our elected officials here in the U.S., felt similarly. So, Robbie, you know, this situation with the tanks, it really is amazing to me to see, you know, what principled courage looks like. You know, everybody now is calling Germany, you know, cowards, you know, decrying their reticence. The pressure is immense. I mean, imagine having the entire NATO alliance, you know, demanding something of you. And yet, so far, they have refused to go against what their people want, what their sense of um, the situation calls for. And to say we refuse to be at war with Russia, you know, forever, basically, you know, because that's not the situation as it is right now and not have the situation as we see it. So I, I just think that there's a lot that our elected officials could learn from this situation. And, you know, again, I just keep going. There's, you know, these moments that live rent free in my in my mind. And one of them is, you know, Trump saying, why do we even need NATO? And, you know, th that question is just the kind of thing that you have to be, you know, someone like Trump to even ask, because it is so ingrained that this is just, you know, the way that business is done. So wh where are you on all of this? Yeah, I mean, it matters where the people are. Governments, democratic government, Western governments that purport to be democracies, where where there's a consent of the gov the, the, the governed give consent to their to their rulers to the authority to make decisions with the explicit idea that that power is taken back if the rulers do things continuously that the people don't actually want. What do the people want in this conflict? What do, what do the people in, in Germany or in the U.S. want? And one gets the feelings that the elites, the kind of people who you know, go, went to Davos last week, um, aren't paying close enough attention to what the people are actually saying. Because I get the idea that the people are not so gung-ho, let's keep this conflict going as long as it takes, that's fine, any amount of money is, is, uh, is not enough, we'll spend more. That's not where the people are at, that's so clear. And if the elites listen more closely, they would get that. Which doesn't mean we, you know, we, cease, we immediately turn an, a blind eye to the suffering of Ukraine. It means money spent has to be accompanied by a diplomatic urging, a push for negotiations to begin, realistic negotiations that probably will result in Ukraine giving up something it doesn't want to give up in exchange for Russia agreeing to end this conflict, and then and then going forward, maybe there's an agreement to protect Ukraine, et cetera, so this doesn't happen again. Fine. But that doesn't mean we just keep giving money and we say, okay, spend it however you want. The, the, the next check will arrive next month when you need more money. 
that's it's a waste of money and and lives the the lives being lost i was seeing it estimated hundreds of thousands of casualties on both sides of this conflict it's horrible and that's and that's russia's fault but that doesn't get rid of our obligation to to try to go a different route or the obligation of governments in western democracies to listen to what their people want a hundred percent. And I think I think you're absolutely right. You know, it's Russia's fault that all of these casualties have happened. But have we done everything we could to prevent this conflict from ever starting? No. To make sure that it ends as quickly as possible? No. To make sure that it doesn't become an endless, years-long, entrenched conflict? No. In fact, we've done the opposite. So I, I just really wish that there was more of a debate around this. Mm -hmm. And, and um, you know, in the domestic in the domestic context, I have to say, you know, um, it, there's been reporting that, you know, Kevin McCarthy, as a result of the, the the stand that Marjorie Taylor Greene took for him, you know, to get him elected speaker, that she her profile has really been elevated within the Republican Party. I have to say she's she's been one of the few and strongest voices advocating for a debate on this. So I, I'm hoping that's in that's in the cards. Look at that. All right. We'll have more rising in just a minute. Please stay tuned. Mr. Borlaug, can I ask you, when did you know that the vaccines didn't stop transmission? How long did you know that without saying it publicly? Thank you very much. I'm sorry. Answer that question. I mean, we, we now know that the vaccines didn't stop transmission, but why did you keep it secret? You said it was 100% effective, then 90%, then 80%, then 70%. But we now know that the vaccines do not trans stop transmission. Why did you keep that secret? Have a nice day. I won't have a nice day until I know the answer. Why did you keep it a secret that your vaccine did not stop transmission? That was Rebel News Ezra Levant questioning Pfizer CEO Albert Borla at the World Economic Forum last week. Quick caveat, Rebel News has faced criticism in the past for its reporting over the 2017 Charlottesville riots. However, that clip has gone viral. And on the issue of vaccine efficacy, Borla told CNBC's The Exchange back in 2021 that the vaccine's initial studies showed it protected people 100% of the time against hospitalization, but that it falls to low 90% and mid to high 80% after six months. So I think that question was a perfectly valid question to ask the CEO of Pfizer. Um, the, the implication, the early implication being that the vaccines were not just helping with severe uh, illness and death, but also transmission that no longer holds up. And, you know, Pfizer got government contracts, they're working to get the vaccine scheduled so it'll be protected from liability, possibly also required in some circumstances, schools and other things. Um, it, it seems like a worthwhile question to ask the CEO at this gathering of influential, wealthy people uh, from, from private business and from governments, et cetera. Um, you know, the, the common man is not really allowed into Davos. So there you have a journalist, maybe a confrontational journalist, maybe one from an outlet that a lot of people don't like, but asking a question that I think is perfectly valid. And, of course, he has nothing to say. 
Yeah, it was a, it was an absolutely valid question. Um, I, I he he asked it in a very polite way. I mean, this seems like the Canadian version of confrontational, right? <laughs> I will not be having a good day until you answer my question. <laughs> um, you know, I, I just it was just I thought that that was just a great moment of journalism and really showed up the you know the cowardice his refuse you know the refusal of the CEO of Pfizer to answer the question. Um, you know, the point was made. The point was made, and it was made in a way that you know I think. Again, you know, the theme of this show today has been a way that I really hope liberals, leftists, people who supported, you know, even Pfizer having, you know, protection from liability, let's say, because they thought it was so important, you know, Operation Warp Speed to get these vaccines out, you know, a moment that, you know, even people who maybe supported that could say, that is a question they should have to answer. That is a question they should have to answer perhaps before Congress. That is a question that the American people deserve an answer to. And... I absolutely agree with you. And it's so interesting that the theme, the central theme of Davos, which we talked about on the show a lot last week, um, was the the harm of disinformation. Um, I'm, I'm sure you paid attention to that, that panel hosted by Brian Stelter, uh, whose former show on CNN, you and I have both been on it, uh, where he interviewed a number of people about the central harm of disinformation. And it, it, was, it was alarmist about how bad it is for society allowing people to say things that might be wrong or untrue or exaggerated on Facebook and on Twitter and on YouTube, and how, how we can't ever have society can't function until we fix that problem that they, they said all the other problems being discussed at davos are linked to that problem and okay and here you have a question being put to someone uh, who, who who propagated a falsehood about the vaccines elites propagated that falsehood and that was just ended up being disinformation. And so they never turn this, this disinformation framing on themselves and talk about all the way that the mainstream or the, the elite or, the, or the, the health officials in the government, how all of those people got things wrong. Not always, not everything they said was wrong, but sometimes it was wrong. And, and, how, and the problems that caused. It's always framed as you, the person scrutinizing them, the things you got wrong or might have shared that were wrong. That's this disaster for society. But when we get things wrong, we, that's not worth talking about? Yeah, disinformation has become the new accusation of racism. The, the, the word elites used to silence scrutiny and criticism of what of the things that are in their economic interests, right? So you had A.G. Salzberger sitting there saying, you know, the biggest threat to, to media credibility is is uh, is disinformation, right? Couldn't possibly be that the biggest threat to the New York Times is credibility is anything the New York Times did to squander its credibility, right? It has to be some nefarious, evil external force that impugns the motives and the character of the people demanding accountability on behalf of powerful elites. You know, they always have to find a new way to silence critique ostensibly in the name of some higher virtue. And they seem to have found it here. And yes, you, you guys did a great segment on, you know, this this uh, woman who responded to Brian Stelter by saying, you know, I hope one day soon there it will be, you know, uh, misinformation and hate speech will be illegal in America. 
Mm-hmm. You know, the, mm-hmm. the thing that, you know, I mean, on, honestly, I'm sure a lot of our viewers are well aware of this, but, you know, this is, you know, this is, we don't call this the greatest country and the most free country on earth for nothing. You know, the thing that makes us so wildly above European countries is that we have a First Amendment. We very much value our freedom of expression, but our elites really don't. They really don't have the same yen and, and heart for freedom of expression because it means it gives average people, regular, normal people, the right to talk back, the right to have their own opinions, the right to say, look, just because you're richer than me doesn't make you more right or give you the right to tell me how to live my life. Mm-hmm. And, and she, the person you're talking about who made that comment, the uh, the speech regulator on behalf of the European Union, if you listen to her full remarks, she was actually more kind of moderate or open-minded on the question of how much censorship is too much. Obviously, I would say (laughs) I would draw that line way differently than her. But she was more uh, nuanced on the subject than the publisher of the New York Times. He was the most alarmed of all. He was the one very explicitly saying that, look, we need a, 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 a... a regime where Facebook prioritizes content from places like, oh, maybe the New York Times instead of (laughs) others. And that's what we have to do. I I found that very telling. Yeah, it's telling and it's terrifying. And, you know, this handshake agreement, this sort of between, you know, the deep state, social media companies and liberal media outlets, uh, it's bad. It's really, really bad. And, you know, honestly, it makes you really think like, you know, so you take a place like the Daily Wire, right? And they're consistently ranked sort of highest. You you get get Facebook's top 10 stories every day. You know, Mm -hmm. seven of them are Ben Shapiro says this, Ben Shapiro says that. You imagine how much more reach he would have if all of these, you know, forces were not operating in order to try to limit it. I mean, there's just so much appetite among the American people for just normal points of view that they will not get from, you know, these more established liberal media outlets that have they have a very straightforward narrative and it's very clearly identified with one side of the political spectrum in America. I should mention I did see two or three times over the last few days a, a something go viral on Twitter that was a screenshot of like a slide at the World Economic Forum or an alleged slide at the World Economic Forum or something on their agenda or something that people there believe that turned out to be that was fake. Um, so there, this is an issue and like people, please stop sharing. Like, please stop falling for fake content. Or if you accidentally share something that's fake, delete it. Um, because then like on the comments, on the replies, you have people after people saying, this is actually made up. And then I, some people say, well, it sounds like something they might think. You, you do not come off good when you do that. It, like, share, we can criticize the actual things these people think without like making up things. It's never, it's never a good look. So do be on, do be on the lookout you know, for some of that stuff. For misinformation, if you will. Um, I I will also say I'm sort of of the camp that, you know, this is sort of a distraction. I mean, you know, obviously it's delicious to pour over, you know, these elites exposing themselves and saying the quiet part out loud and admitting, you know, the collusion between all these like larger forces. But at the end of the day, I really don't feel that the World Economic Forum itself is having a deep impact on American public life. I think that our, you know, elites have way too much power, way too much political power and way too much money. um, And they tend to go there. But, you know, if that whole organization 
organization sort of dropped into the ocean, we would still be having the same um, culture wars in America, the same battles, the same class divide. You know, it's more a symptom of our class divide than a cause. And I think a lot of people see it as sort of like a cause, you know, as, you know, some sort of like, you know, where they machinate and when they come up with like the ploy to how to hurt the working class. And it's like, no, that's all happening, you know, at a very individual level, often very unconsciously. And we can fight it at an individual level. You know, for example, um, you know, after disinformation, I noticed climate, of course, was like the number one topic you heard a lot about coming out of Davos. You know, Republican legislators, even at the local level, have proven very powerful and adept at fighting more extremist um, climate agendas. And so that gives me a lot of hope. And I I do see the kind of I hope when people focus on this and share this stuff, they're doing it in the spirit of like, gosh, look at these idiots and not in the spirit of, my God, they control everything, because I think that would be a little bit of a mistake. Mm. Wise words. All right, we'll have more rising right after this. Stay tuned. What's on your radar, Brianna? (laughs) Well, Robbie, as it turns out, the healthcare situation in this country is so bad that even Donald Trump realizes that it benefits his presidential chances to come out in defense of, at very least, healthcare for the elderly. In a campaign ad he issued last week, he warned, quote, under no circumstances should Republicans vote to cut a single penny from Medicare or Social Security. Let's take a listen. Well, we absolutely need to stop Biden's out-of-control spending. The pain should be borne by Washington bureaucrats, not by hardworking American families and American seniors. The seniors are being absolutely destroyed in the last two years. Cut the hundreds of billions of taxpayer dollars going to corrupt foreign countries. Cut the mass releases of illegal aliens that are depleting our social safety net and destroying our country. Cut the left-wing gender programs from our military. Cut the billions being spent on climate extremism. Cut waste, fraud, and abuse everywhere that we can find it, and there's plenty of it. But do not cut the benefits our seniors worked for and paid for their entire lives. Now, you might remember that Donald Trump distinguished himself from the Republican field back in 2016, in part by positioning himself as a defender of Medicare and Social Security against Republicans who sought to cut those programs. Remember when he used to say that he didn't want people dying in the streets from a lack of health care? Well, in fact, Trump's budgets repeatedly proposed huge cuts to Medicare and other life-sustaining social safety net programs. But I will give him credit for at least understanding what DeSantis apparently does not. Americans not only need Medicare to keep from, quote, dying in the street in their old age, they actually love the program. 95% of beneficiaries say they're satisfied with their Medicare Advantage plan, and 93% polled recently by Morning Consult said that protecting funding should be a priority for the Biden administration. 68% said it should be a top priority. This seems like a no-brainer. If you want to win an election, and more importantly, if you want to protect elderly seniors who have worked hard their entire lives in anticipation of receiving this benefit, you need to be focused on health care, and not just for the elderly. An October 2022 poll showed that 39% of voters are either very likely or somewhat likely to cross party lines for lower health care costs. But get this. While Trump is wisely making a bid for health care concerned voters, 
Biden seems to be thumbing his nose at them, or at least hoping they don't notice that his new chief of staff is deeply implicated in exactly the type of health care fraud that has caused the cost of health care to balloon and millions of Americans to pay more for their care with worse outcomes than anyone else in the developed world. I'm talking about Jeffrey Zients. The previously, uh, previously tasked with overseeing Biden's COVID response plan, the COVID czar will now be taking over Ron Klain's duties as right-hand man to POTUS. And if it wasn't already clear that Joe Biden's allegiance to the healthcare and pharmaceutical industry is stronger than his commitment to the people he was elected to protect, this choice of consigliere speaks volumes. Science has the largest net worth of any Biden administration official, personal wealth that grew between $10.4 and $28 million in 2020 alone. So how did he gain so much while the rest of the country was in the throes of an economic crisis? Well, via healthcare profiteering. Last year, the American Prospect reported that, quote, over the span of two decades, the healthcare companies Zions controlled, invested in, and helped oversee were forced to pay tens of millions of dollars to settle allegations of Medicare and Medicaid fraud. They have also been accused of surprise billing practices and even medical malpractice. Taken together, an examination of the companies that made Zions rich paints a picture of a man who seized on medical providers as a way to capitalize on the suffering of sick Americans. His investment firm was fined $7 million over allegations of fraudulent Medicare and Medicaid billing in 2007. And one of his investment companies, Medesis, the second largest hospice service provider in the country, settled a similar Medicare and Medicaid fraud suit for $150 million a year earlier. Now, I want to be really clear about what his investment companies were doing. According to the DOJ, Amadesis billed Medicare for nursing and therapy services that were medically unnecessary or provided to patients who were not homebound and otherwise misrepresented patients' conditions to increase its Medicare payments. And when a whistleblower in the $150 million case tried to report fraud to upper management, she was told to hold off to see whether the government caught the errors. <laughs> in other words, let's see if we can get away with it. The whistleblower later, later had her pay cut and was demoted before they fired her. There's a special place in hell for people who would use the sick and elderly to extract money from the government. Apparently, they also have a special place in the Biden administration. Now, this will come as no surprise to anyone paying attention to, say, policy rather than fear-mongering articles about Bernie bros and snake emojis during the 2020 primary cycle. Joe Biden took more money from the health insurance and pharmaceutical industry than anyone else in the race. And we're all too savvy here on this show to think that they gave him that money for free. Biden immediately scrapped his weak commitments to build on Obamacare with a public option. Instead, he's pursued such progressive health care reforms as continuing Trump's Medicare privatization scheme. As Bronco Marchetich reported last year, the Biden administration has continued to pursue the Direct Contracting Entity Program, also known as ACO Reach, which opens the door to complete privatization of Medicare. The Arizona AMA chapter, American Medical Association, warned that seniors could find themselves subject to an exploitative system that, quote, limits care to provide maximum profit. In other words, they could get caught up in one of the schemes that made Jeff Zients so rich and Americans so sick. Now, Bernie has been reluctant to challenge Biden on his corruption, including with respect to the healthcare and pharmaceutical industry. 
but he did write an op-ed in Fox News this week making a more generalized case against corporate greed in the pharmaceutical industry, which has caused U.S. drug prices to be at times 10 times higher than in neighboring or peer countries. Over the past 25 years, Bernie writes, the pharmaceutical industry has spent $8.5 billion on lobbying and over $745 million on campaign contributions to buy politicians. There are now three drug company lobbyists for every member of Congress. Pfizer has donated a million dollars to the Kentucky Republican Party to expand its headquarters there, which are, get this, named after Mitch McConnell. This after Pfizer increased its profits by 140% in 2021 to $22 billion. Let me ask you, did your healthcare costs go up or down during that same period of excessive profit? Now, Bernie pointed out that the very companies that profited from COVID while enjoying liability shields for a harm's cause are now looking to hike prices on the COVID vaccine by 400%. This is after Moderna received $1.7 billion from U.S. taxpayers to research and develop the vaccine in the first place, and after it made $19 billion in profits over the last two years. And it's not just COVID drugs. Bernie points out that Japanese drug manufacturer Estella raised the price of a prostate cancer drug by more than 75% to nearly $190,000 for the drug. This is a drug that federally funded scientists at UCLA invented in the first place, and which sells for one-sixth of the price in Canada. Over a million Americans rationed insulin last year because they couldn't afford their prescriptions. Meanwhile, drug manufacturer Eli Lilly increased the price by 1,200% since 1996. It cost $8 to produce insulin, but it sells for $275. In Canada, it costs a tenth of what it costs here. Meanwhile, Eli Lilly made $5.6 billion in profits in 2021, and its CEO made $50 million in one year alone. Now, Bernie ends his op-ed by calling on Congress to have the courage to take on the pharmaceutical industry, but he knows they don't because it's not about courage. It's about corruption. And Joe Biden, whom Bernie describes as his good friend, is hardly immune from that corruption. He just appointed a pharmaceutical fraudster to be his right-hand man. And one of the most flagrant shows of fidelity to big pharma you can imagine. And one of the worst parts, the mainstream media will treat this betrayal as less important than some classified documents in Mike Pence's office. And there's not much we can do about it at this point. This is is what our priorities are as a country. It doesn't seem like either political party, with the exception of some of these op-eds from from Bernie Sanders and Independent, are really willing to call out this deep corruption in the pharmaceutical industry. I thought it was very interesting to see Bernie Sanders pen an op-ed for Fox News. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think he was very savvy, your old boss, to, uh, (laughs) to frame it in a kind of language that appeals to conservatives at this specific moment in time, because there is a lot of animus in the conservative movement or conservative media toward pharmaceutical companies right now, particularly Pfizer, due to vaccines and vaccine, uh, the idea that vaccines were going to be required of people, that they've you know, failed to 
fully deliver on the process of what Pfizer said, and, and, and also, to conservatives' credit, touching on some of the corruption there, the partnership between the private sector and the public sector that, as you correctly point out, was tremendously profitable for Pfizer. You know, what did they do? Uh, who have they bought off uh, to, to ensure they don't have any real competition for these kinds of things, including for those products? Uh, you, you know, you listed off a bunch of really expensive products that I, I have to guess, I know it's true for insulin, I bet it's true for a lot of the others that don't have, com so ideally, in a properly functioning market, you couldn't just raise the price of your drug 200% because you have some competitor right. or a number of competitors who just keep it at the original price, and so you can't sell it for that. But because of the rigorous intellectual patent enforcement that is part of the American legal system and sort of and somewhat unique to the American legal system, they can get away with that. That is the case for insulin. I bet it is for a lot of those others. 100%. And to be clear, so many of these drugs were developed in state right. institutions, publicly funded institutions. Right. And then they turn around, get exclusive rights to them, and jack up profits. At the same time that there are people involved in these institutions, people like uh, Zions, who are extracting money from the government for services that aren't actually being provided or aren't medically indicated. I mean, the, the grift is all around. And the idea that you would choose somebody with this checkered of political history to be your senior advisor, your chief of staff, is, is outrageous. And I got to say, I happened to be listening to Pod Save America as I was coming into work today. And they were talking about the appointments of, of, of Zions. And they were like, oh, well, there's some pushback from the left about his, about his um, record. But I think that people should be judged on what they do when they're in public office and not about what their careers were before they entered public office. They didn't have the same obligation to the people. That's malarkey. That's absolutely ridiculous. The idea that one's entire life experiences of, of working for, being a profit generator for the very industries you're now supposed to regulate, oh, that, that you can just siphon off those parts or, or, or cordon off those par parts of your life like that is so naive that I don't believe that these people could actually believe it. They're just doing anything to run cover for the corruption of the Biden administration, and it's disgusting. Um, not at all surprised to hear that Pod Save, Pod Save America landed on the trust the science <laughs> version of this thing. Uh, thank you so much for that, Brianna. We'll have more Rising right after this. What's on your radar today, Robbie? Well, the World Economic Forum's yearly meeting has come to an end, and the world's wealthy corporate elites and government leaders are heading back home to continue strategizing about how best to fight climate change, never mind the 150-plus private jets they took to the conference in Davos. Uh, as we discussed last week, one of the central themes of this year's conference, in addition to climate change, was the supposed crisis of online disinformation, the failure of social media platforms to restrict false information and prevent the gullible masses from consuming it, was held up as the central problem for our times. Because how else can the authorities at Davos figure out how to move us around like chess pieces if we keep doing unexpected things because we're reading sources of information they don't approve of that clash with their preferred priorities? and preferences. World Economic Forum leaders are fully committed to fighting the war in Ukraine for as long as it takes, and they can't have the people getting too upset about the food shortages and energy prices that are resulting from it. Former CNN anchor Brian Stelter hemmed a panel on disinformation in which a U.S. Democratic politician and the publisher of The New York Times discussed how best to weigh the trade-offs between your right to free speech and their need to shut you up. But it was the remarks by another panelist that most captured the Internet's attention. This remark by European Commission member Vera Yourova went viral. Let's watch. Well, we need 
the people who understand the language and the case law in the country. Mm. Because what qualifies as hate, hate speech, as illegal hate speech, which you will have soon also in the US, I think that um, we, we have a strong reason why we have this uh, in the criminal law. In that clip, Yarova announces that she believes European-style hate speech laws, which criminalize transgressive and offensive political statements, will be coming to the U.S. Yarova is the European Union's Commissioner for Values and Transparency. You have to admit she's being fairly transparent about her values there. More recently, she also had this to say on the subject of Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter. After Mr. Musk took over the Twitter with his freedom of speech absolutism, um, we are the protectors of freedom of speech as well. But at the same time, we cannot accept, the, for instance, the, the illegal content online and so on. So uh, our message was clear. We have the rules which, has to, which have to be complied with, and otherwise there will be sanctions. Follow the rules or face the sanctions. That's the EU's message for Elon Musk. She also said the time of the Wild West is over and that social media companies must behave themselves so as not to cause harm. We know what the Davos authorities mean by harm. They mean scrutiny of Western government's COVID policies. They mean open criticism of China's communist authoritarians and questions about whether China's lax lab safety protocols were responsible for the entire pandemic. They mean vocal opposition to the war in Ukraine. Any challenge to the resolve that they believe all democratic nations must show. In other words, they mean dissent. Thankfully, the U.S. is not part of the European Union, and we have a little thing called the First Amendment that ostensibly prohibits the federal government from censoring our words just because they might be provocative or controversial or not entirely agreed upon. Our federal government wishes, of course, that it had broad power to control our speech. Federal bureaucrats' constant pressuring of social media companies to moderate content is a worrisome example and shows how our government will always try to get around the First Amendment. Even so, Americans have a lot more protections than their European counterparts, at least for now. Make no mistake, the Davos enforcers have noticed that Elon Musk is offering, or at least promising, a more open and less regulated Twitter platform. They don't like it one bit. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. We had this kind of comparative law conversation on my podcast last week. We were talking about the controversy around Brazilian speech laws and some criticisms that Glenn Greenwald has been making and then some criticisms he's been receiving as a consequence of perhaps critiquing Brazilian speech standards. Um, as though they are American speech standards. And even though I think that we're here all invested in our speech standards and the First Amendment and having a more, or let's say, less restricted version of freedom of speech, it is, in fact, the case that other countries have made different kinds of decisions. And their laws are different. And their constitutions, to the extent that they have them, say different things. So I don't know. I, I, I think it is true, obviously, that other places like the EU or Brazil, they have something more broad hate speech laws. They are restricted from saying certain things. My guest talking about Brazil was talking about how, you know, racism was illegal and it's a little difficult to wrap one's brain around. But then you think well, we have restrictions in our own speech here with respect to if you, you could call not being allowed to kick someone out of a restaurant because they're black making racism illegal in the United States. I mean, we all live on some kind mm -hmm. of a spectrum. And I guess my question is this. You know, we live in a, in a global society. We have these global corporations like Twitter. What, you know, 
it, it, is it really so nefarious? I mean, we don't have to like it. We don't like what other countries' rules are. But is it really nefarious for the EU to say a, a company operating in, in its country has to obey its speech laws, and the same for Brazil, and the same for the United States of America, that we will we'll have fewer restrictions because that's what our laws no, say? No, of course not. It's, it's absolutely fine for different countries, different uh, civilizations, different groups of people to organize and have different rules for how they want to live. I think that's totally fine. What we worry about here is, is at Davos, is people saying, oh, this is what we do in our country, and thus, and, and we're an elite Western successful democracy, this should be exported everywhere. This should be the standard for everyone. I mean, that's what she said, sort of said at least, mm -hmm. in, that, in that conversation we played from Davos, where she's saying, I, I bet hate speech laws will be coming yeah, to you. Yeah, I mean, it sounded to me, and again, I, I, I don't have a dog in this fight, but it sounded to me like she was just saying, it seems like there are growing concerns around Mm -hmm. You know, misinformation in the United States, which is obviously true, particularly among the people from America who are talking at Davos. And maybe they are—they've given her the indication that there's a growing appetite for hate speech laws, expanding hate speech laws, which, which at various times in history, there are always—there is always mm -hmm. an appetite for expanding those kind of laws. Now, I don't know how much that is— actually likely, in fact, the laws that we have seen being promulgated right now in the last few weeks of, um, uh, of 2023 include a number of extremely authoritarian laws that I spoke about on my radar last week, including a ban on wearing what you want in, in drag, wearing drag, point blank period, um, the banning right. of a number of books. Such from, a ban that, by the way, would not survive a legal challenge sure, on First Amendment grounds. Yeah, but it, it still is the case that, you know, conservatives across the country are promulgating these extremely authoritarian laws. There's a ban on all of these books in Florida. I talked to a math professor, um, a math teacher on my show last night. He said it affected him. And I said, why? It's math books. He said, I don't know, but there's 45 books that we've been told. Maybe it was 55 books that we've been told we can't use anymore. So, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I sometimes think that we're overly rosy about what the First Amendment is actually doing for us. It is a stop. It is a backstop. Mm -hmm. That it's an important one. Um, but it doesn't mean that these people aren't right. There are definitely anti-speech authoritarian impulses happening in this country, both from people who would want to make hate speech illegal and people who would want to make, I don't know, me wearing pants illegal. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but they can sue. Like, the First Amendment does protect that. At the end of the day, we're better off with that. Also, to, to your point about, you know, having different policies. So, obviously, I'm not an expert in the European Union and, and how it is formed and how people get the position in there and to what extent it's democratically representative of what the people think. I, I know many that there are European conservatives, in, including the whole Brexit movement, right, that had criticisms of how decisions are reached under the European sure. Union framework, whether that's actually representative of, I mean, this is a, this is a world government for Europe, right? Is it, is it respective of, of the different the, the many different uh, different uh, countries within its purview who have their own distinct histories and customs and rules. Um, like, I, I don't know if the kinds of uh, uh, the ways the hate speech law is applied—I mean, in, in Britain, the hate speech law has been applied to arrest and ticket people for, like, posting rap lyrics on Facebook. Yeah, there was or, that incident during the Queen's funeral where people were followed um, for holding up signs that were critical yeah. of Prince Andrew. I mean, it's, it's wild stuff. It, it, it certainly doesn't pass Very wild. Yeah, not um, even close. You know, I, I, and I, what I'm saying is I don't even yeah. know if the people agree with that. If, it just, this is a, if this is an, a European Union dictate, is it just the elites getting together at Davos and they have these, the, the, these jobs that aren't particularly democratically accountable? They're more like 
you know, the workings of our inner deep, our, our, our federal official, our bureaucrats, yeah. and they're coming up with these policies, and they're not constrained because they don't have a First Amendment, and they're not really accountable either. You know, my impression of things is that it's a mixed bag, the same way that we feel like the fact of us having free speech here, uh, having the First Amendment here, means that there's some bad outcomes that we don't like but we live with because we think it's all better for the better and the balance. Mm -hmm. We don't like Nazis walking through the streets, but we, mm -hmm. we accept it because that's the price of freedom. Mm -hmm. I think on the other side, there are moments that are too restricted that people don't like, but they think on balance it's good because it's worth the price of not having Nazis march in the street. I, you know, again, in this Brazilian context, the guest I was talking to, Andrew Fishman, who is the um, head of the Intercept Brazil, he was he's an American, but he's been living there for like 15, 10 or 15 years, speaks Portuguese, you know. And he was saying, yeah, I have an American sensibility. But I also realized that we live in a country that very recently just got out of a military coup. There are rules in place to prevent the military, which is not as independent as the American military is, um, from undermining democracy. You can't, you can't post things that encourage there to be a military coup in, in saying things like this. Racism is illegal here. And it is, you know, I understand why these laws are in place, given this political context, as compared to the American one, where we haven't really ever gone through that kind of a political moment. And the Intercept Brazil, it has gone through a lot of like censorship and attacks on speech. It has been a real bete noir of the media infrastructure in mm -hmm. Brazil, and it has had to live with the consequences of that. But even that being the case, he was like, look, I, I get it. He wasn't making an, an argument for one side or another. But I think that we are all a little naive about the negative implications about whatever regime that we choose for ourselves. And, and it was it was interesting to have this conversation where someone was willing to say, look, there, there are downsides, and you just basically have to decide what point from which you want to start arguing. What what point do you want to what people to have to sue from, this side or that mm -hmm. side? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's it's not just it's not just our principles, though, right, that causes us to or causes liberal-minded people um, to support free speech in the First Amendment. Also a an idea, maybe an unproven, maybe people disagree with this, but an idea that not suppressing even toxic ideology, that suppressing them makes them more attractive to certain people and can backfire and 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 doesn't that you you actually you can't stop this even even very dangerous Nazism like you can't stop uh, stamp it out by making it illegal by making it forbidden you actually draw people to it or you make it seem like it's being persecuted and it's being there well we're, we're if people are so afraid of us why or if we're so crazy why won't they let us speak why are they afraid that you might hear what we have to say and it it totally backfires and so that actually allowing that is a healthy way to operate in a I'm, liberal society. I'm generally moved by that argument. But the counter-argument that people bring up, it's worth noting, is that there have been these instances of people who have been disappeared from social media. Again, I'm not advocating for this. But there are people who have basically been truly canceled from social media, not just performatively, oh, I've quit my job at a university and now I'm going to start a substack. No, like actually fired and limited on social media, who have largely just left the public consciousness mm -hmm. because they haven't been able to find an alternative audience. Even Donald Trump, for all that he's still obviously a major political figure, had, I think, a significant dent to his social relevancy after he was kicked off of Twitter. People like Milo Yiannopoulos, when they were canceled by their own community years ago, largely just completely disappeared because they weren't on social media, and also even Breitbart and the Republicans weren't well, trying to talk I mean, to him anymore. I think that's a mixed bag, because attempts to stop him from speaking at universities was his whole step. Right, right. I, I completely agree. So that's what I say. I, I generally speaking, am moved by the argument that 
censorship as a whole doesn't get to the root of the problem that you have. Like Milo Yiannopoulos is actually a belief system. But there, there, there are these counterexamples that I think are worth paying attention to. Well, we gotta leave it there. We'll have more Rising right after this. We've been covering the dispute in conservative media between The Daily Wire, a major conservative uh, content publisher, uh, where of Ben Shapiro's site, Jeremy Boring, Matt Walsh, Candace Owens, and others, their dispute with Steven Crowder, who's a conservative YouTube star who doesn't like the terms of the contract they offered him, and is, in fact, so offended by it, he is accusing them of being in bed with big tech. Uh, Crowder was on Tim Pool's show last night to give his version of events. Let's play some of that. You go to The Daily Wire. They say, here's a term sheet. You go, whoa, this is crazy. Right. Hey, you can't do this. The Daily Wire then says, all of a sudden, you're not also, but a few months later, Crowder registers Stop Big Con. Then yeah. he calls and secretly records Jeremy. He was setting us up. This email right here paints a different picture in that you talked with the Daily Wire and said, here's our issue. Yeah. Here's what we can't do. And they said, okay. And then sometime later, they try No, they said, if that's the issue, this is our business model and you right. don't know business. But then they try yeah. and poach one of your employees. So this is uh, really getting, uh, I guess, not, not out of control, but it's a big, it's heating up. It's a big deal, this dispute. Uh, Crowder says that the terms of, of the contract they offered him, so, so basically the issue is, in the contract, it said if he gets demonetized on various platforms, then they're going to start deducting how much they pay him. Uh, they're going to start subtracting the total amount they pay him. And initially, when people heard that, they were pretty outraged by it. Then it later came out, but the total amount they're paying him is $50 million over three years, and also he has to pay staff, et cetera. It's still a lot of money. Then I think people were much less sympathetic, and also Jeremy Boring, the, the co-founder of Daily Wire, did a long video where he explained, where he tried to say, "Look, this was our opening bid. This is the what, this is a document we sent him. We could have negotiated with him further if he didn't like specific aspects of it. But but bottom line is, we were offering him a huge amount of money. It's not that we like having to punish people if they get taken down on YouTube or, or else. We hate that. But the reality is, if if you're not being monetized on those platforms, you're then not worth that amount of money. Mm -hmm. So we can't we can't." Can't just give you millions and millions of dollars if you're no longer able to realize value for us. Mm -hmm. Like we're running a business here, mm -hmm. which I, I think is a pretty persuasive argument, frankly. For but what kind of things was he being demonetized? What kind of statements? So Stephen Crowder, he's a very provocative conservative. Uh, he's, he's gotten in trouble, I think, for uh, for COVID stuff. For, he interviewed Alex Jones on a show once, just kind of let Alex Jones say whatever he wants to say. And again, he, the Daily Wire and Crowder, and, and probably even you and I on some of this stuff, agree that the, these policies that the various platforms have to punish you, I mean, we've gotten unfairly punished. I, sure. I, think it's, I think it's BS a lot of times. They're not saying they like that, but that's just the reality. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and you, you, can't, you can't like expect that amount of money and then just, but with no strings attached, no matter what happens, we're going to keep giving you that amount of money, is the daily, what the Daily Wire said. Crowder has said, but you're values-driven. You have said your values are being against the whole big tech model, and yet it's written into your contracts that this is how you operate. And then he's tried to suggest that he's more upset about, not, it's not for his own sake, but for how they might treat like a younger, he keeps using the word kid, although it could be a person of any age, but a person starting out in conservative content creating, and, and he would describe them as being, as being shackled to this contract. And then he had a conversation with Jeremy Boring where he surreptitiously recorded Boring 
say, uh, saying, uh, saying what, whatever he said about how that would be, you know, that would, they'd be wage slaves yeah. for a little bit. And uh, he's kind of been playing that as a gotcha. Um, and the people, the people at the Daily Wire and a lot of people are really upset that he would, you know, like secretly record what used to be a friend and then try to humiliate them. So that's where the state of things is. Uh, let's also play Candace Owens. So, so a lot of Daily Wire people are firing back, defending the Daily Wire. Candace Owens has in multiple interviews. She was on Tim Ca uh, Timcast as well. She recently said this, I believe, on her own podcast. Let's play that. Over the weekend, I was given a lot more information regarding Steven Crowder, a lot more background information regarding what could have possibly led to this moment. And not to my surprise at all, obviously, this really doesn't have anything to do with the Daily Wire. And his actions are a symptom of much, something much larger. And I want to choose my words very carefully here because I'm not angry anymore. Steven has a lot going on. I guess is the best way to say it. He has a lot going on, and that should be clear because people don't do stuff like this if there's not a lot going on in their lives. You don't sell out your friend. You don't record conversations. These things are actions of individuals that are perhaps acting out of desperation. You have to dig deeper. You have to look deeper to fully understand the picture of why somebody might do that. And it's certainly not because somebody is upset with a $50 million contract. And because I now am more aware of certain information, rather than being angry, I would like to implore my audience and everybody that isn't paying attention to this situation not to condemn him, but to pray for him. Sometimes people need a prayer. Sometimes people need a scripture. You know, Stephen purports to be a Christian, and I believe that he needs to lean into his faith. And uh, I am certain that in the near future, more information will come out. I do not think it is my place to say more than that. Well, probably what I should say is I am unsure at this moment if, if it is my place to say more than that. So I saw many people talking about this as a kind of a threat. Yeah, that was a threat. Blackmail. That was a threat. <laughs> I don't know what she's referring to. Uh, previously, her and other Daily Wire people have suggested that you know Crowder may sound like he's just doing this. Uh, th this is a moral stance, but of course, in in positioning himself against the Daily Wire and framing them as compromised, including with big tech, he's trying. To, he's calling more attention to himself. He can launch an independent channel and say, like, "Well, but I, you know, I will never be lie to you. I'll never censor myself or hold back. I'm not beholden to this big corporation. That kind of thing. Mm -hmm. That's a shtick people do mm -hmm. all I, the time. I, I think that's a." <laughs> I think that's a, we know some people who've done that. I think uh, that's a fair criticism from them. I don't know what she's getting after there in, in terms that was insane. Yeah, there's I don't know obviously some saying. implication that there's something going on in his personal life that she's, you know, not going to talk about right now, but might him talk about in the future. If he keeps talking. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, yeah. As someone who's not involved in this media sphere, it, a couple of things strike me. One, the need for all of the other. Uh, content creators to weigh in seems odd. It seems like they should just stay out of it. And I don't know that this necessarily makes Daily Wire, Daily Wire look better. Um, if it were normal employment context, I think everyone would be told to not weirdly gossip and make public statements about internal company going goings on. It's also a little odd to me that there is like a circling of, a, of the wagons around management. I guess everybody else's contracts are very good. Um, 
Well, they're fifty million dollars. What do you? You'd feel pretty, uh, pretty positively disposed towards your management if they were giving you fifty million dollars, wouldn't you? Yeah, I mean, it, we'll see. It'd be interesting to know. Even you, Brianna. <laughs> even the uh, the unionizing progressive crusader. Well, I, I would presume that there was something in my contract terms that could guarantee by money, regardless mm -hmm. of whether or not I had some criticism of management. You know, I've yeah. you know, been allowed to be critical of things that, here at the Hill that I've disagreed with in the past, and I wouldn't be here if I felt like I was precluded from doing so. No, right. I, I, I joke, they it. disagree all the time. Uh, you know, Ben and Ben Shapiro has did eventually start criticizing Candace Owens for her perceived defenses of Kanye, Kanye West. West. Perceived defenses. Yeah, literal, <laughs> actual defenses. Yeah, yeah, and uh, look, I think it's definitely interesting. It's good content. Maybe that's why everyone's uh, yeah. allowed, if not encouraged, to go ahead and weigh in. Yeah. Um, it would also, you know, I think it is, does seem to be likely that Crowder is setting himself up for a departure. It's just unclear to me why it is that he is quite so upset about what is ultimately a very lucrative contract and also one that only is imperiled if he gets canceled on the social media outlets. Mm -hmm. So unless he thinks he's being censored or demonetized, rather, for unfair things that are outside of his control, it seems like a kind of a, yeah. an easy work. Well, and he said he's already demonetized on YouTube, so he was very worried about that being in the contract. Like, he's already in that state. The Daily Wire people said, like, okay, again, we just, this was just kind of a boilerplate thing we put in front of your face. We could have negotiated it. If that was going to be a sticking point, we could have changed that. But you abruptly cut ties with us and then weeks later started attacking us which and maybe that and then maybe in that clip with Tim Pool it sounds like he's kind of disputing that timeline so I don't know the thing I think that is is not totally wrong with what Crowder is saying is that there is this kind of uh, condemnation of big tech and the platforms without a lot of by organizations that do have to work with them and maybe that's fine but but it is something that's going on. Then where I'm, but what I, I think the Daily Wire does get right is that it's just not, perhaps they didn't frame it in a way so that he could understand it necessarily. Probably but this is the same thing that's been going on with the Twitter files. It's like there's a narrative that says uh, the big tech is like evil and out to get you. But we're, what we're seeing a lot of is, you know, even even the government, even the CDC is feeling misled by government or by mm -hmm. farm or by big pharma. It's all of these corporations that have competing interests that are fighting for what their own interests are, and it's 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 not this like evil, nefarious, uh, you know. Mm -hmm. big-headed monster that it's being framed as being. So yeah, like it doesn't surprise me or strike me as especially hypocritical that the head of this conservative media outlet would both not like the censorship and also want to create uh, contract terms that accommodate model, for right. this. Yeah. Like, yeah. this is capitalism. No, right. I agree. People want to make money, and these are the consequences. You, they will censor you for money. That is the whole I point also of capitalism. Agree, <laughs> and I also agree with them that it's a really low move to record someone you think you're friendly with mm. without their permission and then leak that. Although, on Tim Pool's show, Crowder brought up but we all applaud this, we being everyone in the conservative movement, applauds this when James O'Keefe does it, when he's calling to light abuses in, in big government and big corporations, big media corporations, we all applaud it. And that's what I did, and you're saying there's something wrong with that? Mm. I think that's kind of a good. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't entirely understand the moralizing around the recording of the call. Sometimes it's illegal to record a call, one-sided, depending on what state it is, but assuming that there's no actual legal implications here, they can say that they're friends. I don't know what their relationship is, but this was a kind of a business negotiation context. And 
you know, people keep record calls for their records. So they know what was said, so they know what they should be arguing. Mm -hmm. Leaking it and recording it, I think, are two kind of separate things. But I don't know. I'm very interested to see how this all plays out. Well, both Crowder and anyone in leadership at the Daily Wire, standing invitation to come on and make their case if they would like. We'll be back with more Rising right after this.